Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africans await President Ramaphosa's State of a Nation address. And ICC wants Sudan's former president Omar al-Bashir to face justice. In economics news, Zimbabwe's power utility implements stage two power cuts. And in sports news, South Africa on the brink of World Cup exit after New Zealand defeats. But first up the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The head of the ruling military council in Sudan has called on the opposition protest movement to resume peace talks. In a speech on state television, Lieutenant General Abdel Fanta Al-Buhan urged the forces of full freedom and change and all political powers to hold talks with the military council. It's not clear if they are ready to resume dialogue as there has been deep mistrust of the military rulers since security forces opened fire on peaceful protesters two weeks ago. Doctors say more than 120 people were killed. The authorities said 61 had died. Meanwhile, Sudan is at the crossroads with the opportunity to depart from its previous policy of complete non-cooperation with prosecutors to the International Criminal Court and embark on a new chapter by signaling a new commitment to accountability for the victims of Darfur. That's according to the ICC prosecutor Fatal Bin Suda when delivering her 29th report to the United Nations Security Council that mandated the IEC to investigate the situation in Darfur while requiring Sudan to fully cooperate. She confirmed that all five arrest warrants in the Darfur situation, including for deposed President Umar al-Bashir, remain in force. Shawan Bryce Peace reports. Bashir, along with two other suspects, Abdel Rahim Hussein and Ahmed Haroun, are, according to the prosecutor, currently detained in Khartoum, while Ali Kushaib and Abdallah Banda remain at large, all wanted in connection with war crimes or crimes against humanity that saw more than 300,000 killed and 2.5 million displaced in Darfur since 2003. Authorities in Sudan have ruled out handing over suspects to the court. South Africa says it continues to support the council resolution that referred Darfur to the ICC. The countdown has begun ahead of South African President Cyril Ramaphosa's State of the Nation address this evening. He told the media after meeting the presiding officers of Parliament on Wednesday that he would deal with issues of concern to the nation in his address. Ramaphosa's address will come as the economy contracts to just over 3% and unemployment stubbornly rises to over 27%. He says the address will be an important opportunity for him to rekindle the hope to overcome the the challenges the country is facing. 
It's an important address, particularly taking into account where we are as a country, where the economy did not perform well in the last quarter. So there are quite a lot of challenges that we face as a nation, which we have to address. And I'll be addressing issues that are of concern to all of us as South Africans. And out of this, we hope that we will be able to dream big as South Africans and be galvanized to go and build the South Africa that we deserve. This is the moment when we have to move forward with greater determination to that South Africa that all of us deserve after the years of apartheid and colonialism. In the race to lead Britain's governing Conservative Party, the only candidate to rule out a no-deal Brexit, Rory Stewart, has been knocked out of the contention. In the third round of voting by Conservative MPs, the former British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson consolidated his lead. The BBC's Jonathan Blake reports. It's all over for Rory Stewart. After being eliminated, the self-styled realist who rejected a no-deal Brexit and pledged to stick to the agreement negotiated by Theresa May argued that the party wasn't prepared to face up to reality. Before the vote, he suggested there were dark arts at play as rumours swirled that Boris Johnson's supporters had lent their votes elsewhere to scupper Mr Stewart's chances. Claims denied on all sides. Boris Johnson himself consolidated his runaway lead, adding 17 votes to his tally. So the race continues to be about who'll face him in the final two. And finally, authorities in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, are banning motorbikes from the city's streets as part of an effort to reduce crime. The administration believes that a rising number of thefts are being committed by people on motorbikes. Addis Ababa's deputy mayor, Takele Umla, says motorbike owners have just over a fortnight to find alternative transport before the ban comes into effect on the 7th of July. Embassies and the postal service will not be affected by the ban. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa says his address to the nation today will be an opportunity to rekindle hope to overcome the challenges facing the country. He was speaking to the media after he and Parliament's presiding officers conducted the final inspections on the state of readiness for Parliament to host the first State of the Nation address of the sixth administration. Deba Mugobo has more. Well, I'm quite relaxed. I've been taken through the process by the speaker and uh, the chair of the NCOP. They were actually telling me what to say. They've already written the speech, so I was reciting the speech that they have written. So I'm ready. President Ramaphosa in a relaxed mood and joking of who wrote his speech ahead of his first State of the Nation address. But his much-anticipated address on Thursday evening comes at a time when the economy had contracted by 3.2% in the last quarter, 
the biggest decline in a decade while unemployment remains stubbornly high at over 27%. And the president said his address to the nation will be an opportunity to spell out ways to overcome all these challenges. It's an important address, particularly taking into account where we are as a country, where the economy did not perform well in the last quarter. So there are quite a lot of challenges that we face as a nation, which we have to address. And I'll be addressing issues that are of concern to all of us as South Africans. And out of this, we hope that we will be able to dream big as South Africans and be galvanized to go and build the South Africa that we deserve. This is the moment when we have to move forward with greater determination to that South Africa that all of us deserve after the years of apartheid and colonialism. Meanwhile, presiding officers of Parliament, Tandimudis and Amos Masondo, say they are ready to oversee the official opening of Parliament on Thursday. Modise said they will also ensure that the rules of the House are adhered to. We are all systems go. We have confirmation of almost all our guests. We are expecting that we will start on time and finish on time, so we are fine. We will make sure that uh, between the two of us, the chair of the NCOP and myself, that order is maintained, that all the rules are um, applied very equally across the board, and we'll make sure that we start and we finish on time. If we can't, we shall still start and finish. And with 1,200 guests invited, former presidents Thabo Mbeki and Kalema Motlante have confirmed their attendance, together with the former speakers of the National Assembly, Dr. Frenichi Nwala and Maxi Sulu. Other dignitaries expected to grace the occasion include the president of the Pan-African Parliament, Rochang Kondo Dang, and veterans Andrew Mlangeni, Dennis Goldbeck, Gertrude Chop, and Sophie Williams de Brain, among others. I am Tebumokobo in Parliament. South Africa's President Sil Ramaphosa has several issues that he can positively report on when making his first State of a Nation address after the recent national and provincial elections. Ramaphosa has delivered two sonas after taking over from a recall former President Jacob Zuma in 2018. We look back at Ramaphosa's speech at the State of a Nation address in February this year and some of the promises he made and whether he has delivered. Zaline Merrington reports. Cyril Ramaphosa delivered his speech in February this year with allegations of impropriety around the controversial logistics company Bosasa hanging over his head. The EFF had threatened to disrupt the sitting if Ramaphosa did not address this matter. But Ramaphoria prevailed when he easily diffused the potential confrontation. When I invoked Hugh Masekela's song, Chumamina, none other than Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. But I thought wise not to do so. We agreed that if the EFF wins the elections, and he is installed as the president of South Africa, then he will invite me to come up stage and sing for him. So that is the agreement that we've got. Then it was time for serious business. Ramaphosa announced that the only way to rescue the struggling power utility, ESCOM, would be to split it into three entities. We shall immediately embark on a process of establishing three separate entities, generation, transmission and distribution 
under ESCOM holdings. But nearly four months later, Ramaphosa is expected to announce further measures to assist ESCOM. He met with the ESCOM board two days before Sona. The power utility has meanwhile also lost its CEO, Pakamani Hadebe, after just more than a year in the position. On the issue of land, Ramaphosa announced that a panel of experts will look into the matter and report back to him. As part of accelerating land reform, we have identified land parcels that are owned by the state for redistribution. Strategically located land will be released to address human settlement needs in urban and peri-urban areas. The panel handed over its report to the presidency earlier this month. It is still to be made public. To make the battling economy grow, investment is needed. Ramaphosa announced that his investment drive is bearing fruit. In 2017, we recorded an inflow of foreign direct investment amounting to 17 billion rand. Official data shows that just in the first three quarters of 2018, there was an inflow of 70 billion rand into South Africa. The latest gross domestic product figures have shown the economy in fact shrunk in the first quarter of this year. This was more than double the contraction expected by economists. It has also been reported as the steepest decline since the global financial meltdown 10 years ago. In the fight against corruption and state capture, Ramaphosa announced a new directorate to be launched inside the National Prosecuting Authority. There is an urgent need to establish in the office of the NDPP an investigating directorate dealing with serious corruption and associated offences. Last month, Ramaphosa appointed advocate Hermione Cronier in this position for a five-year term. Zaline Merrington, Parliament. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa will deliver his first State of the Nation Address SONA of the 6th Parliament on Thursday, the 20th of June. The address will, however, be the President's third since assuming office in February 2018. His previous SONAs were on the 16th of February 2018 and 7th of February 2019. Join Channel Africa throughout the day and listen live to the national address at 1900 Central African Time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Today in 1990, Nelson Mandela receives a hero's welcome in New York. Mandela, who was deputy president of the African National Congress at the time, was received at the City Hall after a traditional parade up Lower Broadway. Let's listen to Nelson Mandela give a historic address at Riverside Church in New York City. It is a great honor for me to stand before you and bring you warm greetings from the African National Congress and the struggling people of South Africa. In particular, Oliver Tambo, our president, lands you 
his best wishes and deep appreciation for your support over the long years of our bitter struggle. During the long years when we were in prison, you did not forget us. Neither did you abandon our struggling people. You enlisted the most cherished beliefs of your religious calling. You took up the mission of promoting justice and peace and helped the people's fight against the evil of apartheid. We salute you. We thank you for the resolute contribution. It is a precious gift. We are confident that in the very near future, it will contribute to the realization of the non-racial, non-sexist, democratic, and united South Africa of our joint aspirations. And that was Nelson Mandela speaking at Riverside Church in New York City on this day in 1990 at the start of his U.S. visit. Bashir. remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. The Intergovernmental Authority for Development, IGAD, has held a meeting in Addis Ababa to discuss the crisis in Sudan. The meeting was attended by Minister of Foreign Affairs from the member states. It has called for all parties to channel their support to Sudan through the African Union Initiative to avoid mixed messages. The meeting comes as negotiations between civilians and the military council has hit a deadlock. Koleta Wanjohi has more from Addis Ababa. President Omar el-Bashir of Sudan was removed from power in April by a popular uprising. The hope for a fast return to democratic rule in the country, however, was interrupted by the Military Transition Council, which demanded a share in leadership. The African Union has maintained that power must be given to civilians. It has tasked the regional body where Sudan lies, the Intergovernmental Authority for Development, IGAD, to map out how Sudan can be assisted to return to dialogue. The regional body met on Wednesday in Addis Ababa at a ministerial level. Gedu Andargachu, the Foreign Affairs Minister of Ethiopia, says the biggest task is how to assist the civilians and military in Sudan to return to the negotiating table. Everything possible must be done to prevent violence, which will, will further escalate the situation and undermine the prospect for a negotiated, negotiated settlement. Secondly, the initiative taken to bring the parties to the negotiation table needs to be built up further. This confidence, building, this confidence building measure will help in setting, setting the stage for the resumption of talks and all possible leverage must be used to encourage the parties to return to the negotiation table to finalize their discussion. 
The European Union was represented at the meeting by Alexander Rondos. That when the European Union formally states that it acknowledges the role of leadership that the African Union is taking in this, it means it. And it assumes, therefore, that the African Union works out with all its uh, regional organizations how these things are best handled. He warned against many avenues of solutions towards the Sudan crisis. This is a region that is beginning to attract unprecedented attention from many interests in the global arena. In simple language, we run the risk of having a diplomatic traffic jam. It needs a traffic policeman. That, it's basically that. Because otherwise there's the risk of multiplication of fora, confused messages, which end up doing a disservice to the very people of Sudan who deserve our greatest and closest attention. The Igad ministerial meeting was also attended by the United Nations. Parfait Onanga Anyanga is the UN Secretary General Special Envoy to the Horn of Africa. The UN has been calling for an end to the violence and urged the parties to resume and conclude negotiations over the transfer of power to a civilian-led transitional authority as soon as possible. We have seen the parties come very close to an agreement and retreat into discord and mutual recriminations. Anyanga adds that the UN has a special envoy tasked to monitor the situation in Sudan, but the UN will conform to the African Union efforts. What is important is that the Friends of Sudan act in concert, bringing to bear their combined influence to help the Sudanese people agree on a path to follow. Back in Sudan, protesters have begun night protests in Khartoum and beyond, as civilians demand that the military transition council gives the power to civilians. President Omar el-Bashir was presented to court on 16th of June. This was the first time he was seen in public since he was ousted from power in April. The 75-year-old was read the corruption charges against him. I'm Koleta Njoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Sudan is at a crossroads with the opportunity to depart from its previous policy of complete non-cooperation with prosecutors to the International Criminal Court and embark on a new chapter by signaling a new commitment to accountability for the victims of Darfur. That was the message from the ICC prosecutor Fatou Bensouda when delivering her 29th report to the UN Security Council that mandated the ICC to investigate the situation in Darfur while requiring Sudan to fully cooperate. She confirmed that all five arrest warrants in the Darfur situation, including for deposed President Omar al-Bashir, remain in force. Sharon Bryce Peace reports. Bashir remains in custody in Khartoum after being ousted from the presidency in April, and the International Criminal Court wants him and his co-accused handed over to them. Listen to ICC prosecutor Fatou Ben Souda. Sudan remains under a legal obligation to transfer these suspects to the ICC to stand trial unless it it can demonstrate to the judges of the ICC that it is willing and able to genuinely prosecute them for the same cases. Consistent with the bedrock principle of complementarity enshrined in the Rome Statute, I am ready to engage in dialogue with the authorities in Sudan to ensure that the Darfur suspects face independent and impartial justice, either in the courtroom in The Hague or in Sudan. Continued impunity is not an option. The victims of the Darfur situation deserve to finally have their day in court. 
Bashir, along with two other suspects, Abdel, Rahim Hussein and Ahmed Harun, are, according to the prosecutor, currently detained in Khartoum, while Ali Kushaib and Abdallah Banda remain at large, all wanted in connection with war crimes or crimes against humanity that saw more than 300,000 killed and 2.5 million displaced in Darfur since 2003. Authorities in Sudan have ruled out handing over suspects to the court. With this council's support and the cooperation of the authorities in Sudan, there is an opportunity now to make real progress in the pursuit of accountability and justice for the victims in the Darfur situation. The current reported violence against civilians in Darfur must stop, and all the ICC Darfur suspects must stand trial. We must not squander this opportunity. Mr. President, Your Excellencies, now is the time to act. The victims of the Darfur situation have waited far too long to see justice done. We must not fail them. I thank you for your attention, and I trust that this Council will take decisive action in support of accountability in this situation. South Africa says it continues to support the Council resolution that referred Darfur to the ICC. Listen to diplomat Thabo Molefe. South Africa continues to support resolution 1593 of 2005, which refers to the situation in Darfur since the 1st July 2002, mandating the ICC to investigate war crimes and war against humanity. South Africa is deeply concerned about the continuing violence and the loss of life in Darfur, as indicated by the prosecutor in her report. South Africa deplores the fact that violence has been directed in particular at civilians. European nations have backed Ben Suda's attempts to have Bashir handed over to the court, but Russia, China and the United States do not recognize the ICC. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. A world that remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. Peaceful protests in Malawi against the outcome of the May 21st presidential elections are on today. Protesters want the nullification of the outcome of the presidential poll. They cite vote counting irregularities as evidenced by use of TIPEX on many results sheet forms as a major reason for backing their call. George Mango reports from Plantai. Peaceful protesters, according to a program of events, are ready to display messages such as Electoral Commission Chair Jane Asama's four, make commissioners must four, no TPEX election and arrest of presiding officers involved in fraud and misconduct. Despite legal challenge from opposition political parties to stop vote counting, the Malawi Electoral Commission went ahead with the vote counting and declared Peter Mutariga of the Democratic Progressive Party DPP winner. The demonstrations have been approved by all city councils. Blanta City Council was the last to approve, of course, after a second thought. It first rejected the application, saying organizers submitted the proposal late. But renowned human rights activist Undule Magasungura 
thinks that while people have the right to demonstrate, the matter is in court and patience was needed. Because the issue which are being advocated or pushed forward that the, uh, the commission, the chairperson of the commission and the commission and some officers, I think that's where maybe the problem is because the issues which the opposition parties asking Malawi to look into have been put forward to the court. So to me, I find that the, the demonstration has somehow misplaced us in both the issues and the court, and the, it is like uh, trying to influence the court at the same time. Much as the demonstrations are constitutional rights, but I think we need to look at how best do we address these issues. Right now, as I'm, I've been saying, that the issues are in court, so it was very important that the, we wait uh, the court process to take place so that the, uh, those grievances which were put forward to the courts by the opposition parties are addressed according to how the courts look into the issue. But some people are bitter with the Malawi Electoral Commission MEC, hence such calls for the resignation of MEC commissioners and chair Jenny Ansar. James Perry, a longer resident, supports the demonstrations saying MEC was not serious in the way it handled the vote count. It is very, very justifiable because if you look at the whole situation, we are talking about a process. This is a process that was manned by the MEC chairperson, the justice of appeal, Jane Answer. She is the head of the Malawi Electoral Commission by virtue of being the chairperson. Now, the chairperson has the right in any organization to overturn any decision by her subordinates where she notices that something has gone wrong. Now we are talking about people who are managing the election process that is the uh, retaining officers. We go down to the very first place where people did vote. Now when you look at the whole situation, you look at a process that looks very, very flawed. So if uh, there are people that are calling for demonstrations for the resignation of the mixture person and uh, her entire team, then I would say this is very, very called for. To some extent, there is growing division on whether it is viable for people to take to the streets and make such demands, considering that the poor case is in the constitutional court. For Victor Chipofia, a Blanta-based political analyst, protests against the outcome of the presidential vote are baseless. We've had six elections and four of them uh, have always been disputed. Why don't the human rights defenders go on the street and march urging the parliament to say that we need better systems in place rather than wanting certain people to fall? The demonstrations have the backing of the immediate past vice president Saulo Chilima, main opposition Malay Congress party MCP leader Lazarus Chakwira and also religious groupings are behind the demonstrations. The two Chilima and Chakwira have confirmed participation. Today's demos have been organized by the Human Rights Defenders Coalition, which is a grouping of various human and social organizations in Malawi. It is yet to be seen whether the protest today will disturb the just opened sitting of parliament, which yesterday elected speaker and deputies of parliament in the 193-member house. In the elections, main opposition Malawi Congress Party parliamentarian Catherine Gotanihara was elected Speaker of Parliament after beating Estam Cheka Chilenje of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party with 97 to 93 votes. This means Hara becomes the first woman ever to be elected Speaker of the National Assembly in Malawi's history. This Friday, President Peter Mtarika is due to make a State of the Nation address sonar which signals the opening of the sitting 
and Malawi's 48th session of parliament. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headline, 17 people have been killed in a village in the north of Burkina Faso. Head of the ruling military council in Sudan calls on the opposition protest movement to resume peace talks. And it's World Refugee Day. The day commemorates the strength, courage and perseverance of millions of refugees. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. The United Nations Secretary-General has appealed directly to Russia and Turkey to stabilize the situation in the last rebel-held territory in Syria. The northwest province of Idlib has been the focal point of a month-long government offensive supported by Russia, while Turkey supports some rebel factions in the region. Antonio Guterres made the appeal as the Secretary Council again met to draw attention to the evolving situation on the ground. The never-ending war continues, and the focal point, a northwestern region of Syria, where a government-led counter-terrorism operation is affecting civilians with hospitals and schools targeted in violation of international law. Listen to UN Chief Antonio Guterres. I am deeply concerned about the escalation of the fighting in Idlib, And the situation is especially dangerous given the involvement of an increased number of actors. Yet again, civilians are paying a horrific price. And let me underscore that even in the fight against terrorism, there needs to be full compliance with international human rights and humanitarian law. Guterres's political chief, Rosemary Dicarlo, did not mince her words later when she briefed the council, reporting that airstrikes, the use of barrel bombs and cluster munitions continue. Exchanges of mortar and artillery fire are ongoing, resulting in civilian casualties and massive displacement. Population centers and civilian infrastructure, including schools and medical facilities, have been attacked, mostly in areas already deemed de-escalation zones and in violation of international law. Undoubtedly, the situation in Idlib is complex. But, as we have repeatedly said, counterterrorism cannot overtake obligations under international law to protect civilians and the obligation to strictly observe the principles of distinction and proportionality. The problem posed by HTS will need to be dealt with in a more effective and suitable way one where civilians do not pay the price. That can only begin with the restoration of calm. UN officials clear the dealing with terrorist group Hayat Tahrir al-Sham or HTS in the region must happen without triggering a humanitarian catastrophe. But the UN's humanitarian chief Mark Lowcock said that since May 1st, 330,000 people have been forced to flee their homes. Turkey and Russia are signatories to a September memorandum aimed at de-escalating the conflict in Idlib, but the council heard that in the absence of progress, the consequences would be unimaginable. 
I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. A United Nations human rights investigator has found that the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi constituted an extrajudicial killing for which the state of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is responsible. The 100-page report by the Special Rapporteur on extrajudicial summary or arbitrary executions calls for Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and other senior Saudi officials to be investigated over the murder, finding credible evidence that they are liable for his his death. Khashoggi, who was a fierce critic of the Crown Prince and the Washington Post columnist, was last seen entering the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey on October the 2nd last year, never to be seen again. Show and Bryce Peace reports. The report by independent rights investigator Agnes Kalamart called on countries to invoke universal jurisdiction for what she termed an international crime and make arrests if individuals' responsibility is proven. She writes that it is the conclusion of the special rapporteur that Mr. Khashoggi was the victim of a deliberate premeditated execution, an extrajudicial killing for which the state of Saudi Arabia is responsible under international human rights law. Kalamad finds that there is credible evidence warranting further investigation of high-level Saudi officials' individual liability including the Crown Princes. The first important message I think my, my report highlights is the fact that the execution of Mr. Khashoggi was the responsibility of the state of Saudi Arabia. So far, uh, the reporting and the, um, the information provided by various authorities have focused on, on different individuals. I want to really insist that the responsibility of the state of Saudi Arabia is engaged into that execution and there has been no uh, demonstration that the state itself of Saudi Arabia has accepted its responsibility for the killings. Khashoggi, a United States resident, was last seen entering the Saudi consulate in Istanbul on October 2nd, never to re-emerge. His body was dismembered and removed from the building and a Saudi prosecutor has said his remains have never been found. Kalamad says that the evidence points to a 15-person mission to execute Khashoggi, requiring significant government coordination, resources and finances. There is no way the, um, the leaders of that state, including the Crown Prince, were not aware of those violations. Uh, in fact, there is evidence, credible evidence, pointing to their, their involvement. Confirming this, she says that every expert consulted finds it inconceivable that an operation of that scale could be implemented without the Crown Prince being aware that some sort of mission of a criminal nature directed at Mr. Khashoggi was being launched. The focus has been on who has ordered the killing. I do not have evidence regarding who has ordered the killing. What I do have is evidence suggesting that the responsibilities of high-level officials may be engaged and therefore is requiring further investigation, in particular of the Crown Prince, for a variety of reasons. The first one is that the people directly implicated in the murder reported to him. She has called on the UN Secretary General to establish an international criminal investigation to ensure accountability for the crime, a question put to his spokesperson Stefan Dujeric. The Secretary General does not have the power or the authority to launch criminal investigations without a mandate from a competent intergovernmental body. 
power and authority to do that lies with member states. If a full and effective criminal investigation is not conducted by member states, the only way to effectively pursue an investigation requiring the cooperation of relevant member states would be through a resolution of the Security Council under the appropriate charter provisions. And all member states should cooperate with those efforts. Kalamad says the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia did not cooperate with her inquiry and failed to respond to her requests to visit the country. The Kingdom, for its part, has put 11 officials with links to the murder on trial, but those proceedings have been conducted in secret. The special rapporteur has called on the FBI to open an investigation urging the United States, a close ally of the Kingdom, to make a determination under American law as to Mohammed bin Salman's responsibility for Khashoggi's death. I'm Sherman Bryspees in New York. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, right Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil élevé. We are What's in the happen Africa? Africa. Dumelang Sanbonani. Africa Mulishani Pulibanj. Africa and Yomi Kilon Shele. Africa Ndinkim Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, Zimbabwe, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from. We are one people. Channel Africa. The African perspective. This is DJ Cleo with G-Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa. Bringing you the African perspective. A Kenyan court has found three men guilty over the 2015 Garissa University massacre in eastern Kenya, which left 148 people killed. Rashid Charles Mberesero... Mohammed Ali Abikar and Hassan Idin Hassan were convicted at the Milimani Law Courts in Nairobi for helping those who carried out the attack on Garissa University. The prosecution is seeking a maximum sentence against the trio with a sentencing date set for July the 3rd. Sarah Kimani reports. After several adjournments and a long wait on Wednesday, Chief Magistrate Francis Andai delivered his ruling convicting three of the four accused. I'm satisfied that the incident that took place at the Garissa University College on the morning of 2nd April 2015 bore all the above elements of a terrorist act. PW7 said that the attackers informed them that they wanted to send a message to the government of Kenya through them. I find that the said terror attack was carried out for the purpose of coercing the government of Kenya to pull out its defense forces from Somalia. And acquitting one of the suspects, Sahal Diri Hussein, saying there was no evidence to link him to the attackers or any of the accused persons. Kenya has been a victim of several terror attacks linked to the Al-Shabaab militant group since it sent her troops to Somalia. The Garissa University attack is one of the worst attacks to be carried out on Kenyan soil. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Good morning. Zimbabwe's electricity woes are set to worsen as the country's power utility ZESA has started to implement stage 2 load shedding. This has now led to households and businesses going for up to 16 hours a day without electricity. Zimbabwean authorities say this is caused mainly by reduced generation at the hydro-powered Kariba Dam owing to low water levels and breakdowns at the coal-powered Huangye power station. Economist Prosper Chitambara says this is bad for Zimbabweans. It's a very, very difficult situation for the businesses. Well, what it actually means is that uh, they have to have backup uh, in the form of uh, generators, and obviously that increases uh, the cost of doing business. So uh, I think a lot of business are feel, businesses are actually feeling the pinch. Of this power outage, which may actually even entail probably some retrenchment of part of their workforce. The Democratic Republic of Congo's mining week has started in the mining hub of Lubumbashi. The annual event brings together thousands of mining experts and international stakeholders from more than 50 countries. Januel Bamweze reports. The DRC Mining Week is an important event made of exhibitions and conferences. Several participants have arrived in Lubumbashi and others are still coming, as it's indeed 3,500 international mining experts and local stakeholders expected to attend. Five country pavilions are part of the exhibition and those are from France, Germany, South Africa, United Kingdom and Zimbabwe. Five African commercial banks have partnered in a 375 million US dollar financing deal to build a new diamond mining vessel for a subsidiary of Angola Americans, uh, or rather Anglo Americans, uh, diamond unit De Beers. NetBank Namibia, RMB Namibia, Standard Bank, APSA, and Bank Venthook have agreed to provide 80% of the funding for the ship which will be the world's largest of its type. Debt Marine Namibia, a 50-50 joint venture company between Debius and the government of Namibia will provide a balance of $94 million. The revival of South Africa's economy and the creation of jobs are said to be high on President Sir Ramaphosa's first State of the Nation address for the sixth administration this evening. Ramaphosa's address comes at a time when the economy had contracted by just over 3% with unemployment standing at over 26%. And Debu Mukobo reports. President Ramaphosa's address comes at a time when the economy had contracted by just over 3%, with unemployment standing at over 27%. But the president said his speech will seek to overcome all these challenges. I'll be addressing issues that are of concern to all of us as South Africans. And out of this, we hope that we will be able to dream big. This is the moment when we have to move forward with greater determination. And the Speaker of the National Assembly, Tandi Mudisa, says they are ready to host the President and his guests. We are all systems go. We have confirmation of almost all our guests. We are expecting that we will start on time and finish on time. Guests are expected to start arriving from 5 in the afternoon. Debu Mokobo for SAPC in Parliament. 
In our financial indicators at the Sawa, the US dollar is trading at 357.97 Nigerian Naira. 1068 Botswana Pula, 100 Kenyan shillings, 67 cents, and 1286 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 385 Brazilian real, 6390 Russian ruble, 6958 Indian rupee, 690 Chinese yuan, and 1447 to the South African rand. 79 pence British pound, 89 cents to the euro. Gold $1,379, platinum $813 pounds. The price of Brent crude oil is at $62.60 a barrel. It's Channel Africa. A sports update up next with Figle Lingwati. First up in our sports update, we begin with the cricket news. Bangladesh captain Mashraf Mutaza says his side's astonishing win against Australia in 2005 will mean nothing as he plots another famous victory over the defending world champions. The Tigers produced one of the biggest upsets in cricket history when they defeated an Australia side featuring several all-time greats in a one-day international in Cardiff. It remains Bangladesh's lone win in 21 ODIs against Australia. Bangladesh revived their bid to reach the semi-finals by beating the West Indies on Monday. And Proteas, Fav Duplatis, says he couldn't have asked for any more from his side after they slipped to a narrow defeat against New Zealand at the World Cup. In the first truly close game of the tournament, South Africa went down by four wickets with just three balls remaining at Edgebaston. An extremely disappointed Duplessis also gave credit to New Zealand captain Kane Williamson, whose century was the difference between the two teams. We actually played a good game of cricket. I, I can't fault the, um, the game that we played today. You know, we, we threw everything at New Zealand, possibly 20 runs short, if you're really harsh on yourself, but it was a tough wicket. And um, in the field and within the ball, you know, the guys tried for 50 overs, and that's all I can ask for. There was a great intensity. In football news, the much-awaited Africa Cup of Nations 2019 kickoff on the 21st of June in Cairo, Egypt, as the host opened the contest against Zimbabwe after the anticipated kaleidoscope of choreography at the inauguration ceremony. For Kenya's Harambe stars who are making a return to the continental centerpiece after a 15-year hiatus, the real game begins on Sunday when they battle against Algeria in Group C of AFCON 2019 at the 30th June Stadium in Cairo. The Kenyan contingent landed in Cairo, Egypt on Tuesday night from their camp in France. The management of the team led by Football Kenya Federation President Nig Mwende is over the moon about the morale levels. Let us win! by doing the best and even though we lost let us lose knowing that we gave these kids and these boys all they deserve we paid them we kitted them we fed them we paid for their flights we made sure they are comfortable and 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 whatever the coach wanted which has never happened in kenyan history whatever he wanted uh, we have delivered and i have been there personally to make sure that is done coach sebastian minye 
is clear about this team's mission in Egypt. Maybe it will be uh, difficult for Afcon for us because uh, after one absence, after 15 years old, uh, for this kind of competition, we need to learn. I need to be also realistic. I think uh, to pass, to access uh, after the, the first group stage, it will be a, a huge result uh, for us. But after that, I like the challenge. It will be on one game if we are qualified. Everything is possible on one game. And finally, with the rugby news, the junior Springboks owe it to themselves and the country to finish the World Rugby Under-20 Championship on a winning note when they line up against Argentina in the bronze playoff in Rosario on Saturday. That is the view of junior Springbok captain Pendulani Butelezi, who said the last two days were tough for them team, but they were well aware of the significance of the task ahead. The skipper said it was important for the team and the country to finish the showpiece on a high note. The clash between the junior Springboks and Argentina started 6 p.m. Central African time on Saturday at the Race Course Stadium and will be followed by the final between Australia and France at 8.30 p.m. Central African time. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. IGAD ministers meet in Addis Ababa to discuss the crisis in Sudan. And South Africa's President Sul Ramaphosa prepares to deliver his State of a Nation address. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327, or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. I'll take us to the top of our for the news on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za is Lena Dembo with a song titled Titekete.